Why do I assume that she's better with me than with her own mother, right? Was she 19? Yeah. Was she poor? Yes. Did it look like a good situation? Not the best. Yeah. Right? But my mother was abusive and my father was an alcoholic. And I'm sitting here with you on the Let's Give a Damn podcast in yep. my nice house yep. in LA, right? Your amazing family. And, and your, yes. And I say things about my parents that I that that feel, you know evolved to me when I look at where I was, right? The amount of work and the amount of healing and the things I did. And, and I go, you know what? Okay, here I am. I wouldn't change it. Hello, dear friends and damn givers. I'm Nick LaPara, and this is the Let's Give a Damn podcast. As many of you already know, this is the show you come to when you want to hear from amazing people who are giving a damn in so many incredible, unique, and meaningful ways. Thank you for hitting play on that little mobile phone of yours. Thank you for showing up this week. I hope you're doing well, and I'm so glad you're here. If you follow closely what we're doing here at Let's Give a Damn, you may have noticed that we took a couple weeks off from releasing podcast conversations. This was an intentional decision. In light of the recent war that was started by Russia toward the people of Ukraine, I didn't want to add any additional noise. I hate war. War is horrific. War is pointless. Vulnerable and marginalized people usually pay the highest price. It fucking sucks. Two, three weeks into this war, the war is still not over. Hundreds of people have died and things still feel very unsettling. I'm numb in a lot of ways, I'll be honest. But we are cautiously and humbly back with a conversation with a fantastic human who is trying to live a meaningful life. Before I introduce this guest, I want to hear how you're processing this horrific war in Ukraine. Who are you listening to for updates? Who have you donated to that you believe is doing good work? in and around what's happening in Ukraine? Where have you found pockets of good news in the midst of all the bad news? I really would love to hear from you. And as I've said a million times before, and I'll keep saying I'm always available at hello at letsgiveadam.com. Okay, my guest this week, friends, is actress and damn giver Rochelle Lefebvre. You may know Rochelle from The Twilight Saga, Homefront, Edge of Winter, Law and Order, or her dozens of other film and TV roles. But Rochelle is so much more than her career. She is a fantastic mother, a generous activist, and an all-around good human. Last week, while I was in LA, we hung out at her house and recorded this delightful conversation. In this conversation, we talk about her non-binary child, the story of how they adopted their daughter, our mutual love for Adopt Together, a nonprofit crowdfunding platform that bridges the gap between families who want to adopt and the children who need loving homes. Of course, run by our friend Hank Fortner, who's also been on the podcast. We talk about the ups and downs and struggles and beauty of life. It's just a really good conversation with a really good person. And I know that you'll be encouraged by this chat. So hang in there. It's coming. Before we begin, as always, a quick reminder that you can email me at hello at letsgiveadam.com anytime to ask questions, recommend future guests, tell me how much you love or hate the podcast, anything really 
I just love hearing from you. And now, let's get right into my conversation with the incredible Rochelle Lefebvre. Let's go. Well, let's start. There's so much to get to today, and we will get to some more of the parenting stuff because uh, as we were chatting beforehand, yeah, there's things that I want to flesh out that I think you can encourage so many people listening on. But I want to get some context because we don't know each other. I know. We're meeting for the first time. We're in your beautiful home. And I, um, before we get to all the big stuff, your career, uh, adopt together, just different things that I know about you that I want to get into, I want to go back into your story. And because, you, well, you already mentioned one of your sister's names, Tova, beautiful name. Your name is really beautiful. I know some of why your names are those names, right? So we'll get into that. But your history, when I, when I, when I speak with people who do give a damn and want to have a meaningful impact on the world, going back in the story, the good, the bad, and the ugly that happened in those early years, the people that we surrounded ourselves with or were forced to be around are some of the reasons why we are the way we are today. So tell us the story. Where do you come from? Who are the people, places, and things that made you who you are today, starting with you're from Quebec? Yeah, I'm from Montreal. And I um, it's funny, I can feel my whole nervous system sort of because there's um, there's an answer that is reserved up until now only for my closest friends mm. and family. And then there's sort of like, you know, the representative Rochelle Lefebvre where I don't offer this up. And it's partly what I'm starting to think about in terms of changing how I show up publicly mm. and what I talk about. Um, because there are some wonderful things in my life. Um, but there's also an incredible amount of trauma and I haven't really found the right forum to talk about that. And also like when you, you know, I've been really fortunate to do some amazing publicity for things. And, yeah. but when you do access Hollywood or David Letterman, they're not like, tell me about your traumatic tell childhood. Tell me about all the shit. <laughs> yeah. Did your father drink a lot? Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, so I haven't been hiding it. It's just that like, I've never felt the need to sort of do the unsolicited confessional, but it's starting to feel more and more important to be authentic about where I come from and what I lived through. Mm. Because I think that there's a lot, every time I read comments on Instagram about, you know, oh my God, you're so beautiful. You're so perfect. You're like, people say very lovely, generous things. And of course they only know what I put forward. Right. Um, but we compare ourselves and I would, it really, it's starting to weigh on me that anyone would look at their own life, look at my life and think that you need a certain set of circumstances to go from one place to another. Mm. And the truth is, um, my mother was manic depressive. My mother was, was bipolar, um, borderline personality disorder, narcissistic personality disorder, high functioning. She was a psychologist. She was an incredible psychologist and helped so many people, particularly children. And I won't diminish that, but the shoemaker's kid has no shoes. (laughs) It was not fun at home. I was raised by Jekyll and Hyde, essentially. Um, and my father was a jovial alcoholic who couldn't help me or save me from the abuse that I endured. So I come mm. from tough stuff. Mm. I, it wasn't, I'm not being glib about it. I just, you know, I've done, I've done a lot of work. I have my 10,000 hours and there's a lot of healing that's happened, but I come from trauma. There's my dog. Um, Nugget, I'm talking about the fact that my mom was bipolar. It's not a good time to be licking the dog Nugget, bowl clean. Chill. 
No, it's fine. Not yet. I'm having a moment. As long as people know what the noise is, they'll go back to listening to you instead yeah, of yeah. like, what is that noise? What is that noise? Um, like those radio competitions where yes. you win $10,000. Yeah. Um, I'm sure it'll stop in a second. Wait, we're going to pause. Now I'm just, now my ADHD is on display and I'm distracted. Nugget, are you quite done? <laughs> there we go. Um, yeah, so that's that's what I wow. I there's been a lot of healing, but that's what I come from. And I had to do the work to be the person that I am now, which I is someone that, yeah, I, I make a lot of mistakes, but I'm pretty proud of where I'm at and the life that I've built, considering I started, you know, being locked in closets and cowering from verbal abuse and bullying and traumatization in the middle of the night. And, you know, it was like, it looked like mommy dearest when people mm. were like, what was mm. it like? I'm like, just watch mommy dearest. Wow. I actually have a scar on my thigh from a bunch of wire hangers. Like, just like, it's, it's uncanny. Um, I was cleaning out my closet one day um, and my mom had a really, really bad episode, a really bad rage episode. And she shoved me onto the bed where all of my, I had taken all my clothes off the metal hangers and had tossed them on the oh bed. And she shoved me into the bed and one of the hangers, the metal hangers took a little out of my thigh and like have that scar. So it's been, it's been something I've been thinking a lot about. Like at some point I'm going to tell this story, right? So that people aren't just going, well, look at your charmed life and that's what you need and you had every advantage and here you are. As opposed to, no, you can actually do the work. No, there is healing. No, I've had some really, I've seen the bottom. And then, I've, and then the floor has come out and I've seen the bottom underneath that. And I've had some super dark moments and a lot of help and a lot of therapy. And if you commit to that, there is healing on the other side. I'm so sorry those things happened to you. Thank you. But I'm so glad that you're doing the work. I really am. I know people, well, I'll share a little bit about my story as well since Please. this has come up. Yeah. But I know people that went through horrible shit didn't do the work for w whether they didn't want to do it themselves or life was just really hard on them. And in many of those cases, it ended very terribly or it's still terrible and they're not getting help and it's just a terrible existence that they're living no fault of their own they were put in sh shitty situations as kids and they just can't see a way out and so to see you as healthy as you are doing the work it's so important you said you were the oldest of the three sisters yeah and that's actually sort of a weird one because i'm the only product of my mother and father and was an only child until i was in my teens and then my mom got remarried and i got two stepsisters and then a half sister but never lived with any of them and so i'm essentially an only child who became the oldest of four girls that i've and none of us have ever lived together oh interesting and then two years ago my stepdad adopted me and I now is now my only living parent. So both my parents are dead. My mother killed herself four years ago. Mm. Um, mm. Th three years ago, four years ago, time is strange. Um, and then 10 months before that, my father died of Parkinson's and alcoholism and old age, basically. Um, so I lost my parents uh, that way. And then a few years later, my stepfather, my former stepfather adopted me. And oh, he is wow. now the father to all four of us, biological to my three sisters, and now adopted father to me. So that's that's the sister thing. That's a lot. It's wild, right? I mean, it's kind of. <laughs> did it ever, as you got older and you know left home or whatever, did it ever get better? Did they ever 
did they ever get better or were they the way that they were all the way through? No, no. What got better? There's my dog walking around. She's fun. You, you all will just hear her. But yeah. Just assume if you hear noises, that's just my dog. That's Nugget. You can say hi. Um, <laughs> I'll throw a picture on Instagram for context. There you go. Uh, yeah, my um, my dad never got better, but I didn't have to. I didn't live with him um, since I was eight. My parents got divorced. Um, so I didn't live with him. And then I didn't see him that often. I went home because I loved him and because I was a dutiful daughter. I would visit home and um, and towards the end of his life, when he was sicker and not able to take care of himself, I gave I, all whatever resources I had, I gave to making sure that he was taken care of um, in the ways that he needed, which was a lot. So didn't have to live with him, just got better in the sense that I was able to just sort of have a relationship with him um, occasionally and keep in touch long distance and then had to look after him in the end, which was hard, but also that was okay with me. My mom, it never got better. It was great not to live under her roof. Sure. But she didn't stop being abusive. Like I used to say, like she turned my phone into a hand grenade. I, like like I, I didn't walk around with a telephone in my purse. I walked around with a hand grenade because anytime it rang, it could be her. And if it was her, that was bad. Oh, God. Um, yeah. And I never knew what I was going to get. She was incredibly, incredibly loving. Dr. Jekyll was wonderful. Yeah. Dr. Jekyll was like, you're amazing. You can do anything. Nobody has a daughter like I have. You're incredible. You're so smart. I believe in you. I love you. You're the best. And Mr. Hyde was like, you're a piece of shit and I'll kill you and you ruined my life. And, you know, and so you didn't know who you were going to get when you answered the phone. I was actually on a film set once and I remember an AD banging on my trailer door because I had to go to set. And you thought uh, it was her. No, oh. I was on the phone with her oh. trying to convince her not to kill herself. And I remember just being like, this is so fucking surreal. And I, I just had this impulse. I just wanted to yell to the AD, like, I'm so sorry. I'm not a diva. I'm not keeping you waiting. I just, I can't get off the phone until my mom puts the pills away. Okay. Yeah. yeah. You know, and then, um, and then eventually the more therapy I got and the more healing and the more healed I got, the more I was able to take distance. And I actually, the place that really saved me was getting to a place where I went, my parents loved me to the best of their ability. Their abilities were severely limited. Yeah. And their abilities were limited. And that's part of living in this imperfect world that we live in. Right. We expect so much more out of ourselves and the people that are supposed to love us the most. And when we don't get that, we, you know... We say and feel all all sorts of things about them. And the, one of the most helpful things that has happened to me as an adult is realizing that 90 plus percent of life is gray. It's not black and white. And everybody's hurt. Everybody is damaged goods in a variety of ways. Yep. They're, everybody is nuanced. Everybody is nuanced. And if we approach people that way, we can even after they're now gone, we can say things and feel things about them. We can say the truth and also say things like, I mean, that's just very generous of you, but that's how we have to be. They were doing the best that they could. Yeah. And I, my, my sister and I, um, uh, all of them, but particularly again, Tova, um, my other sisters would be like, what, we're not great. Um, particularly Tova, we ended up calling it, we were floating around names for this thing that happens after people die or, or when a certain like level of healing is reached and we call it cosmic alchemy. 
Mm. And the cosmic alchemy that took place with my parents was incredible after they died because I realized that I was able to separate out who I think they were in spirit. And I don't think that you need like a religious system to, you know, internalize that message. It's like whatever that means to you, whoever the essence of who they were, um, whoever that was, separated from the fact that it is very, very hard to be a person in the world. It's hard to be in a body moving through this world. And they were plagued by things. You know, we like to talk about mental illness as if it's some like weird thing that happens in the air between your ears, as if it's not a physical disability, as if it's not a chemical imbalance in our brain, which is actually a part of our body. You know, it's not like this weird. So when I think about it, I just, I find a lot of healing in being able to separate out the essence of my parents who loved me and were doing their best. And then as people embodied in this world, we're given a very difficult set of circumstances and we're burdened with disease and the people who came before them who fucked them up, but good. I'm allowed to swear, right? You can swear I as swear much as you want. swear all the time. Sorry. Yeah. You know, they were fucked up before I got here and I couldn't save yep. them from that. And I'm not sorry that what I had to do in the end was save myself. Yeah. You know? My father has been a lot better mm-hmm. for the past 14 years, 13 years. But before 13 years ago, from the, from the time I was a wee lad, I'm the second oldest of 12 kids. So I was right at the beginning of this long line of children. And it was, it was a very difficult upbringing because I felt all these things about my dad. I loved him. I felt affection for him. And it was Jekyll Hyde all the time. He's a pastor, a missionary. We moved to Guatemala to be missionaries, spread the gospel of Jesus Christ, tell people there's good news and you should love each other, da 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 And for years, I was, and not just me, many of my siblings, although my dad, looked, he wouldn't want to talk about it, but looking back, he would say, I got it the most because I was the one that whenever he would say something, I was always saying, why? I wouldn't just go along with it. I was the knucklehead that was like, no, I'm not just going to take your word, which means if there was a beating to be had, I got it first or I was the only one to get it because I just was always pushing on it. So it was, yeah, it was a very difficult upbringing because there was this, he was doing so much good for other people, similar to your mother who was helping other people. But then at home, it was, I mean, one of us got the shit beat out of us each and every day for decades. And then there was this magical moment though, call it, call it God, call it whatever you want. And my younger siblings have no idea the kinds of things that we grew up with because 14 years ago, um, he had this moment, they were living in Honduras. So they had moved from Guatemala to Honduras. I was already off. I had left to do my own thing. And he just had this moment where he felt that God was saying, you're a fucking hypocrite. Stop living this way. You're done. And thankfully, this stubborn, domineering, uh, hard man listened to whatever that voice was saying, and he packed up and moved back to the U.S., just like quit everything, because he was pastoring there as well. Again, he's standing up there preaching all the time, telling people how to live and what God wants them to do and be. And it was all this like positive shit. It was all this like, you know, go out and love your neighbor. 
but then go home and your your wife is scared of you. Your kids are scared of you. They are walking on eggshells all the time because they know if they fuck up once, it's over. You know, it's bruises and it's, you know, wear the long sleeve shirt because we can't go out in public. Mm. Uh, we don't want people to see that. And everybody from the outside, 12 kids, missionary family, going to, you know, third world, you know, Guatemala and Honduras. Like we were the talk of the town in our circle. So I know all that to say, like, I know what that feels like and it feels very bad. And one of the differences in our story is that you never got to see your parents get better. I did, and I'm grateful for that. And I know that you're finding healing through that. You're, you're, you've talked about healing, and now you have this stepfather who adopted you, which I wanna talk about your stepfather. He sounds amazing. Yeah, he is amazing. Um, let, me, let me stop for a second and say yeah. to you that I'm so sorry that that happened to you. And it sounds, in addition to, uh, in addition to hard in all the ways that I'm sure your listeners and that I can empathize right now with, it also sounds incredibly isolating to be having one thing at home and having that really public perception of something else and to have to be walking around and just having all those people assume that you had a completely different situation and having to hide it and sounds really isolating. So it was, yeah, it was, we couldn't talk about it. No. We couldn't talk about it because that would ruin dad's image. Right. And that would have gotten us hurt even more. And that's its own kind of abuse. Isolation yep. and neglect and that kind of abandon that's a kind of abandonment. That's its own kind of abuse. But then it was so weird because like we had, I remember just thinking back on my childhood, there were so many beautiful moments. Right. My dad is the walking definition of hurt people, hurt people. Right. He was hurt growing up. He was not taken care of very well. He left home when he was a kid, ran away from home because he didn't want to be around his abusive father. Mm -hmm. He tried to run away from abuse and then it ended up being abusive. And I'm just so glad that later in his life, he found healing. I still don't know how, it was like a miracle. And now I just love I, him so much. And yeah, that is my, a miracle. My, my kids hang out with him. They've never known anything other than great grandpa, like great, wonderful grandpa. And I'm glad for that. I'm glad they don't have to. And we, it's, it's kind of funny because, uh, Eight of, my, eight of us are married now. As of two weeks ago, my sister got married. So eight out of the 12 of us are married. Five of us have kids. And none of us, all of us broke that cycle. There's none of my siblings that are married and have kids that are, and that's statistic breaking. That's incredible. Because it, there should yeah. be one of us that I'm like, and so-and-so, and, -so, and yeah. John, he's slapping his kids around and being abusive. None of them are like that. When yeah. I see my siblings with their kids, it, it's incredible because I see them being so loving and being so affectionate and talking things through instead of slapping the shit out of them when they, you know, mess things up. So we, again, another miracle in this whole family thing is that all of us so far have broken the cycle. It's also a gift you give to the world because yeah. the hurt people hurt people is true. And it's not just that like, you know, my parents also had extremely difficult childhoods and their own kinds of, yeah. of, you know, they have their own stories as well. And, um, and it's not just the children that people hurt, right? It's not just their children. Right. It's like how they treat other people can also be massively affected or what kind of a role they play in their workplace or like, you know, how people, how hurt people hurt people is a wide net. Right. Um, and so that's also, that's a gift that you gave, not just your children, but everyone who 
you meet and interact mm. with, everyone that your children will interact with, the children that they will have, the children that they will have, like the ripples of ending that cycle are as wide as the ripples behind you, which were also wide and also deep. Like, I don't know how far back you and I could, if we wanted to try to trace the history sure. of the abuse of our family members, you know, as individuals, as a people, right? Um, you're from Guatemala, right? There's a history there. Yep. I'm Jewish. There's a history there. Like, you know, you can trace the ripples back. Um, and then when you look forward and the fact that it's completely different, it's literally changing the world. That's what stopping the cycle of abuse means. Yeah. It means not beating your kids. It also means changing the world. Yep. And I, 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 I'm not apologizing for how dramatic I'm being about that. No, you know, no, it's very, very yeah. true. It's an incredible thing that you've done. Well, likewise, because I, again, I want to talk, let's talk about your family for a little bit, because you, I think you have done that as well. You could easily be following in one of their footsteps or both of their footsteps. You could easily be inflicting pain on whether it's physical, emotional, spiritual, mental, all the pain on your, your, your partner, your kids. Mm -hmm. It could be any number of those things. And I just don't get that sense from you. I feel right. like, like family's hard you know, partnerships are hard. Right. Being yeah. married to someone is Let's really hard. Let's be very hard. clear. I yell at my kids yes, sometimes. Okay. hundred <laughs> percent. Same <laughs> stamp of approval. It happens. Right. And then we apologize, but yes. it, it happens. Rupture totally. and repair. Rupture and repair. I like that. I like that. It's actually. not mine. And that's Dan Siegel. Well, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to borrow that and I'll credit you and Dan Siegel because right. I wouldn't have heard it if it weren't for you. Talk about your family for a minute. Um, you have two children. Yes. Can you talk about them? Because yeah. I know there's, they each have a really special story. Yeah, I do. I have two kids. My uh, daughter is three. My son is five. My daughter's adopted. And my son, um, as of a few months ago, is gender non-binary. So we have two things in our family that we are constantly trying to educate ourselves on and be affirming and just trying to be the best parents that we can be um, to the needs of our children which are outside of the, you know, I don't know what, the biological, heterosexual, neuronormative world that we live in. Yeah. You know? Yeah. yeah. Your child, who, as of a few months ago, is non-binary, yes. gender fluid. Gender fluid or non-binary? Or is that... I'm still learning. Uh, I use ever. I yeah. I I refer to them. Uh, I refer to them as uh, gender non-binary, gender fluid, gender queer. They refer to themselves as gender non-binary, but have not have not been opposed to any of the other terms. Yep. Yeah. Um, Anything but you're a boy. Yeah. And I'm exploring this a lot right now. Tomorrow, I actually have a podcast conversation with. Do you know who Jeffrey Marsh is? Yes. Yeah. Oh my God. I thought I'm, I'm such a huge fan and I cry a lot. Yeah. I, I don't want to show, I don't want my son to have Instagram. He's only there, excuse me. They're only, um, uh, you know, they're barely, they're not even six yet, Right. but I totally do, understand. but I watch Jeffrey Marsh and I'm like, I can't wait to show this to my son. Their videos yeah. are so, I mean, it's just, there's so much heartfelt. There's so much, uh, I mean, I literally feel like Jeffrey is speaking to me. Yes. Same. Except they're speaking to hundreds of thousands of people, mm -hmm. right? So that's coming. And then do you know who Alok is? Yes. Another. So yeah, we'll be doing in that feed. in New York oh, in, you know, in a few weeks. Because that is something that is happening more and more and more in families where these conversations are coming up. And before, they would have just gotten squashed down. And no, that's not happening. Or we're not entertaining that you are who you are. And now these conversations are actually happening. And we're 
We are letting our children be who they truly are. We're not forcing anything on them. We are not, you know, speeding anything up that shouldn't be that shouldn't be happening at all or should happen later. We're just letting them be who they are. Yes. Which is so monumentally important. It's monumentally important. And I think it's, you know, um, I would assume that the kinds of people who listen to your podcasts are like, they're already on board, right? It feels like your audience is like, you know, there's no, the, we'd just be preaching to the choir. Um, but I, uh, that, that being said, I will say just in case, um, because this is something that it's new in the collective conversation, yep. right? And it is, seems to be, when I watch what's happening in the world um, in terms of around these conversations seems to be for some reason a little trickier for people, right? Like um, that this is this one, even people I know who are super open and super progressive still have questions for me sometimes, or still I feel resistance in ways that is not ill-intentioned, but right. they're ju they just have trouble kind of wrapping their heads around it or being fully supportive or fully affirming. Um, and so I just want to, honor that because I think allyship is, doesn't look like one thing. Yeah. And I think it's amazing to meet people where they are and take someone's hand and help them on that journey rather than be like, if you're not there yet, I don't want to know you. Yep. Um, and so to that, I, I, wow, I totally lost my train of thought because I suddenly was getting really preachy there yeah. about that. Um, sorry. No, no. And, and let's go back one minute. Go back and I'll remember well, what I was going to say. That yeah. I got interrupt me anytime. About. Yeah, yeah, You said, I'm sure your audience is fully on board. I would say most of them are, but I am trying to do a better job of bringing in. Oh, that's what I was going to say. Go for it. Okay. I'll, I'll remember mine. You go. Okay. Um, that there's this response by even well-meaning people who are trying to get on board. Um, I think like a fear, right? That at the worst case scenario, a fear that you can create a non-binary child, right? right? That you can kind of, that you can, you can intellectually sort of intellectually liberal elitist your child into this space, right? By having a certain kind of conversation and encouraging certain things. And I don't know, there's this idea that you can like make a non-binary child um, by, by introducing the concepts in your home. Yep. And I also think that there's this um, resistance to believing that children that young can authentically know who they are. There's a huge resistance to that. There's a very big resistance. And I, think I know people in my life that would call you abusive. Right. They would call you an abuser for letting your child be who, be they, who are they are and call themselves in the way that they want right. to be called. Keep going. But I know so, people. To that, I will say that I both, this is something I knew intellectually, but now have watched in real time in my own home. Hmm. Even at five years old. Sorry, it's actually like, you know, I'm talking about my kid. So. <clears throat> um, even at five years old, my son knows that when they put on a dress to go to a birthday party, that they are making the harder choice. Hmm. They, if there is anyone out there who thinks that there's a five-year-old who, because your parents talk about the, oh, their parents are so, their parents talk about gender and their parents told them they could be gender queer and their parents told them they could wear dresses. And you know what? My kid goes to school with incredible kids raised by incredible parents. And there's not a single parent in our kindergarten class who I don't think would let their kid wear a dress. I know they all would be like, you can wear a dress if you want to. Sure. This, this boy in your class wears a dress. You want to wear a dress? Go ahead. The kids who don't want to, guess what? They don't wear dresses. They're not going to. They're just not going to. My son hesitates sometimes, depending on where we're going. Or And I watch that start 
when this whole thing happened because they understand society. They watch TV. They overhear conversations. There's grownups everywhere they go. The news is on in the background. They know by the age of five that wearing a dress, that introducing yourself as gender non-binary, that using they, them pronouns, they know it's the harder choice. They also know, by the way, because I tell them. I tell them some people are not going to be on board with who you are. Yeah. That I'm not sugarcoating it for them. Yeah. And so that's just the thing I want to point out to people who are going, oh, your kid's just doing this to be cool, or it's just what kids are doing now, or you're encouraging it, or it's actually the opposite. It actually takes an incredible amount of courage and self being self-possessed for these kids to go out into the world and go, this is who I am. And I'm not going to be afraid to tell you, and I'm not going to back down. This is this is me. It's it's an it's an important point to make because there are so many conservatives out there, and conservative people in my life, conservative people that are listening to this show right now, that mm-hmm. would that they would speak those talking points that you just mm-hmm. shared from the other side. And the reality is exactly what you just said. And I've talked to so many trans people, even just even just the 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 LGBTQ, the whole spectrum in general. That is the harder choice. Mm-hmm. Still today, even just to say I'm I'm gay, I'm lesbian, I'm bi, I'm trans, I'm whatever it is, all of the letters, that is still the harder choice. In 2022, it shouldn't be. But in other words, no one is choosing to go out there and get ridiculed. Right. Right? No one, no one wants to be ridiculed. It's not cool to get made fun of. It's not cool to get that that double take when you walk through the store or just walk on the street or walk through your school. That's not cool. That's not fun to feel that way. No. So it is the harder choice. It is a hard thing. It is why the suicide rate is up for people of all, again, all the mm-hmm. identities, all the letters is because it's not easy. So I'm always trying to share that with people that are like, oh, it's just, it, look, everybody's doing it, so they're just doing it to go along. No. That's a stupid fucking no. thing to say because they are they they are engaging with who they are and they are actively saying, I know my life is gonna be hard or you know, because your child is so young, you're informing them wisely. Not everybody's gonna like the, who you are. Mm-hmm. So be prepared for that and we're here to help you through that. It also goes against... Um, to that, to that talking point, you know, it, it also goes against the, all the, the, literally the science, all the things we know about humanity and like the human condition, Brene Brown's research, which most people are, I'm, I'm invoking her for a reason, right? She's like, people know about incredible, incredible. Right. So her research is, is an amazing example of this, right? Which is so much of her research has proven is you know fundamentally around one point, right? Which is that belonging mm. will kill for it, will die for it. Yep. Belonging is life and death mm-hmm. on this planet for a human being. And in fact, for animals at large. Hi, Nugget. <laughs> um, and going out into the world and making a choice where your belonging is at stake is actually completely antithetical yeah. to our hardwiring. Right. And so if you are doing that, if that's the choice you're making, it's not possible to override your programming that tells you belonging is life and death. Mm. So it must, what's the other alternative? What's the alternative interpretation? Must be that this is the belonging I'm looking for. This is my authentic belonging. This is who I am. And if I belong at all, it can only be in this iteration 
Otherwise, it's fake belonging. It isn't real belonging. I need to be accepted and 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 in and enveloped by my group, by my people, as I am in this form. Yep. Any other way isn't real belonging. It's literally life and death. And most people go, you know, just playing off of what you just said about the wonderful Brene and the, this idea of belonging. We will. We want to fit in. Yes. So that's why people. Audit, like our, our natural inclination is to give in to peer pressure because that peer pressure usually puts us in with some group. The group that your son now identifies with is very small, very persecuted, very antagonized, and still looked at skeptically by a, a, a huge swath of people, like the huge majority of this country still. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's a huge majority. Millions and millions and millions of people mm-hmm. will think you're wrong for what you're doing, mm-hmm. and that your son is just playing a game, playing along. Um, it's so important for your child to feel loved, to feel accepted. And I'm so glad that you're approaching it that way. I wouldn't expect anything else from what I know about you, but um, can you share how, and I don't want to keep, I don't want to talk about this too much because we have other things to get to, but I think sure. it's so important for people listening. Yeah. Anybody that's parenting right now, like I've got three children. Mm-hmm. So far, Roman is, he identifies as he, and Mm -hmm. the two girls identify as she, and, um, but they have friends that are gay Mm -hmm. and, um, that are part of the LGBTQ family and they, they don't even blink. Kids get this. This is the other thing. Kids are not the problem. (laughs) Kids are not the problem. They get it. Here's one quick story that I, I love to think about because it makes me so proud of my children. And makes me so it, it makes me so confident that we are in a in a very failing filled way, we are doing the right thing by and large. So we're at the library in our neighborhood. And um it's great, it's a great library. We we're there all the time. We're always walking in with uh, you know, totes full of books to return, and we get 40, 50 more. Our kids love to read. They know us very well at the library. In the kids section. Uh, there is a trans man that works behind the desk. Mm -hmm. Super kind, loves the kids, kids love them. And so one day we are returning books and there's like a book drop off. If you don't want to come in, you just like drop the books off. Uh, And so during this certain day, there was someone on the other side actually grabbing the books, you know, was cleaning it out. It was too full. So as we're putting books in, they're grabbing books out. And just by looking at the hand of that person, uh, one of my daughters, who's amazing, I'm not taking anything away from her, but uh, she gendered the person behind this wall based uh-huh. on how the hands looked. Mm-hmm. Oh, look, she's taking the books as we're putting them in there. And my son, who's the youngest, uh, without even thinking about it, like literally just his reaction was to kindly, he didn't say it in a mean way, he just said, they. And my daughter was like, what? And he goes, their hands. And she was like, what do you mean? He's like, you can't, you can't see who it is. It's their hands. And they just, she, she didn't push back and they moved on. My wife told me this later and I was just like, oh my God. Yes, we've talked about these things. Yes, they know um, what these, uh, you know, different kinds of people are mm-hmm. and these different orientations. But we've never, we've never said, hey, if you can't tell who it is, make sure you say they. But they get it. All by themselves, yeah. they get it. Yeah. My wife didn't say, Belle, their hands, you can't see who it is. Right. My son, who still rolls around in the dirt 
and is a brat most of the time and has tons of energy and still, you know, uh, uh, you know, pees his pants sometimes because he can't make it to the bathroom. This son that is all those things right. was able to, in a very reactive way, didn't even think about it, their hands made me feel so proud. It, I mean, it's such a testament, first of all, to the job you're doing as parents and to the, clearly the community that you're, you know, surrounding yourself with and the way that you're raising your kids. I mean, it's an amazing story. It's like you give them, you give them the basic tools that you can give them. And then the best moments are when you watch them go out into the world yeah. and they use it in a way that you could not have, you could not have created that teachable no. moment in no. that way. They just go out into the world and like make you feel like we're going to be, maybe, maybe we are going to be okay. Um, I want to circle back quickly just to say one thing, which is I said sort of in a glib way, you know, kids aren't the problem. Like, and I just, I don't want to, um, I would not want to diminish for a second anyone whose life is currently being, uh, being made harder or miserable by other kids. Because of course, when we say kids, it's possible we mean everybody, anybody under 18. And what I meant by kids learn hate. Yes. What I, I think yes. I, we, what yes. we both meant by that. Yes. There are many kids out there who are the problem who bully other kids in their class and who make, you know, life, um, life miserable, um, for these kids, but kids learn hate. They don't come into the world that way. And I think that you and I meant that, right. Yes. That, that it's, it's not how we're born. It's what we learn is the problem. And we say kids, we mean before they've been programmed. That's a very great point, especially since we were talking earlier yeah. before we started recording about my daughter, who's being bullied in her class mm -hmm. and the things she's going through and the things she's feeling. I totally, I think a lot of people probably understand that, but it's a good observation because it's also a reminder that when I see kids bullying my daughter, nothing about her gender identity or anything, mm -hmm. just about how she looks or different things like that, mm -hmm. that is also, as you pointed out, a result of the people that are around her shepherding her or the lack of shepherding, the lack of mm -hmm. guiding, the lack of good example. Um, kids are born. I believe somewhere in the neutral to good. They're in they're yes. in the they're in the good category. Yes. And we get to teach them and guide them. I always talk about my role as a parent is not to tell my kids what to do. Yes, there are moments where I have to say, stop doing that or whatever. But I think the majority of my job, as expressed in that story I shared, as expressed in how you're raising your children, is just pointing them to good things. Mm -hmm. Saying, what do you think about that? What do you think about that? Let's talk about this thing that I think is good in the world, whether it's an issue or a topic or a person or an idea. Because I grew up being told how to do everything, what to do, how to do it. And that almost fucked me up. And yeah. I'm still decades later unlearning those things because I was told what to believe, how to believe it, this God figure, what they're doing in the world, what they're, if you don't believe in this God, where you're going. Right. And if you do believe in them, where you're going and just say a few words, magical, like magic beans. And like, you're in, you're right. in, you're in, into this, like, you know, afterlife. And so, um, yeah, there's yeah. no agency in that. No, no. It's just a good point to, it's, it's a good, I'm glad you pointed that out because I wouldn't want people to also think that there aren't mean kids out there. There aren't shitty kids or shitty kids, but they're not shitty because they were born that way or because that is a natural inclination. Right. It's because they're also being hurt. Right. Going back to the hurt people, hurt people right. idea. And by the way, teaching a child to hate another human being or to treat another human being as less than is a form of being hurt. That's that's doing an injury to a child. 
you know, you want to talk about child abuse, right? The the new definition, I'm talking to you, Texas, you know, the new definitions of child abuse, yeah. right? Teaching a child to move through the world in such a way as they are looking for who to hate, I think is a form of abuse. Yeah. You're ruining lives, your child's life for one, and all the lives they'll touch with that new, with that new weapon you just gave them. Yep. You know? During Black History Month, uh, mm -hmm. we watched Ruby Bridges. Is it called just Ruby or is it called Ruby? It's a Disney movie. Have you ever seen this? No. It's made, uh, I don't know, 20, 20, 30 years ago. And it's about Ruby Bridges. Uh, you know, this young girl that, that, you know, being surrounded by police and with very much hesitation from her parents, like walked up to that school uh, because it was supposed to desegregate. And, right. and I, I remember I was crying throughout the whole thing. I don't even know if it was meant to be crying moments. I just cried everything. But I'm <laughs> I, like, you know, there were parents yelling horrible things at Ruby and her parents for trying to come in and, and, and mess up this school. And it, what was even more horrible, because again, there's a lot of shitty adults out there doing horrible things. The, the hard part was watching, you know, the, the camera would pan down and show the children saying the same things. Yeah. Why? Because they heard Papa and Mama say those things. It was heartbreaking. And it just was, it was a reminder, like my, my kids and I, I think we talked after that movie, you know, almost as long as the movie was just about, because they've been at March for Our Lives rallies. Mm -hmm. They've been at Black Lives Matter rallies, even at their young age. Yeah, wow. So we're we're doing the opposite of what those parents are doing. Um, but it's just so, it's so important. They're very, uh, the children are so, they're so, they're sponges and they're ready to be formed. And it's such a humbling thing to be a parent, isn't it? Knowing, oh, knowing so that humbling. we could we could point them in the right direction and we can also fuck them up super hard by just little things that they see every day, little things that they hear from us. Just very humbling. I'm always walking around on my tiptoes. I'm on eggshells, just like, yes, ultimately I don't get to decide what happens here, but I'm playing a big role in what they end up being, how they end up living, what they end up doing in the world. Are they gonna have jobs and careers and lives that impact the world? Or are they gonna be bad, you know? Yeah. Are they gonna be fucking, you know, Bernie Sanders or a Donald Trump, right? Trying to their old age to fuck up the world or make it better? Are they, you know, we can pull these examples of people that, that, um, yeah, parents, Bernie's parents and Trump's parents. Different, think, different people, I think different there was, approaches. I think there were different influences Different there. parenting approaches. I think, you know, if there's people out there who aren't parents yet, for those of you listeners who aren't parents yeah. yet, but want to be, or will be one day, or are new parents, um, the something that I've noticed, um, and this is connected to this whole conversation we've had about, you know, affirming your children, and then also like wanting to create good people and, you know, send yep. them up, point them in the right direction. And I think, you know, one of the keywords here is empathy. Yeah. And I have learned so much in the last few months about the connection between raising empathetic children and affirming who they are. Because it turns out that if you just affirm whoever your children are, if, if barring, barring the young sociopaths we see on SVU, sure. <laughs> you know, like, um, if you, if you just tell your children regularly, as I tell some version of what I tell mine, which is you're wonderful. The world is better just because you're in it. That's what I tell my children. That's yeah. their good. That's their kiss. Good night. They're, they're literally bored of me. Guess what? I'm wonderful. The world is better just because I'm in it. Yes, you're wonderful. The world is better just because you're in it. Just by being born. You don't have to earn your spot. You don't have to be anybody specific. You just, whoever you are. And then as they grow, whoever they tell me they are, both my children, whoever they tell me they are, the answer is yes. 
Yeah, I'm going to yes, believe wonderful. you. I'm gonna I believe, believe you. you. Yes, wonderful. And it turns out, guess what I have witnessed that that does at the park when they interact with other children at school or they, you know, are out in the world in any situation. Guess what? Turns out, how do they treat other people? Other kids tell them who they are. Okay, great. And I just think about like, what will that look like? If we raised our children that way in all mass, what will that look like years from now, decades from now? Again, I get like sort of dramatic, but I don't apologize for it. I actually think, you know, these are the ripples that change the world. I get sort of Marianne Williamson big eyed on the debate stage about it, you know, or become sort of the family hippie, the family kook where I go, no, no, listen, you tell children, yes, whoever you are is wonderful. Yes. Okay. That's who you are. And then that's how they treat everybody else. And then maybe decades now we're not living through a horrible war, multiple wars that are, you know, I don't, a war makes it sound like there aren't other wars in other places. No, but I get it. Right. You see what I'm saying? Yep. I do. Yeah, I do. And I'm, I'm so glad you're parenting in the world. I'm so glad I'm trying to parent in the world because I do think you're, you're so right. One of the beautiful things about life is that our legacies will outlive us and we won't get to see the fruits of our labor. So we'll hopefully get to see our children grow up. They find partners, start families, whatever it is, we'll get to see that. But then we won't get to see maybe after that or a little bit of it when they're young and then we pass on. And I think that's beautiful because it it humbles me. Mm -hmm. If I get to stay around for the next 300 years and see multiple generations of the effect that I have, I'm going to, if I'm doing things, something right now, I will get a big head. And it's just not natural to like see that much of the extent of our legacy. We're going to die. Yep. And they're going to keep living. And that humbles me so much as I'm living every day, making decisions, you know, kissing my kids, hugging my kids, yelling at them, and then getting down on my knees to ask for forgiveness because I shouldn't have done that. We won't get to see the ripple. We won't get to see too far down the line. And that's a good thing. It it should keep us humble. It should keep us in the moment and doing the best that we can because we won't get to see if we fuck it up down the line. So it's, Mm -hmm. there's just more of a reason for us to get it right. Slow down, be patient, like get it right. Like slow down how we're parenting and how we're leading these children. I, I couldn't agree more. You know what else keeps me humble is imagining, knowing that I will fuck up a, a lot of yeah. things, right? Knowing that we're totally going to shit the bed in yep. many departments. And um, sometimes uh, the cure for when I get too in the clouds about it, you know, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to affirm our kids and end war. <laughs> when I get sort of, um, when I need to be humbled sort of back from that place, uh, I think about what my kid's going to tell their therapist. <laughs> like one day on a couch, my husband and I sort of laugh at night darkly. Uh, we go, huh? Like, I wonder what those conversations are going to be like. Because you know they're going to be in a therapist's office one day being like, my fucking mom and dad. Yeah. You know, yeah. with their list. Yeah. Yeah. Which and is- I don't, I, I may or may not get to know what those things are. Yeah. Very That's humbling. humbling. <laughs> so let's talk for a minute about, I want to switch to adoption. Yeah. Um, your daughter's adopted. Yes. How and why did that happen? Why is adoption, how did adoption come up? Why is it important to you? Um, And then I want to get to Adopt Together as well, an organization that both of us love. And Hank's been on the podcast in the past. And um, he's amazing. Yeah. Wonderful human, wonderful. Sue Ann, his wife. Yeah. Yeah. So how and why did adoption come up in your family? So it's interesting because we're back to my mother now, but in a completely different way. So um, my mother, who I mentioned was a psychologist, was was a fantastic psychologist and um, extremely high functioning and helped a lot of people. And in addition to having a private practice, she also worked at, she testified in court cases and did like forensic psychology where she would say, you know, 
this, I think this child is being abused. This child shouldn't see their grandfather anymore. This mm. child should live with the mother or this child should live with the father. She did those assessments and then testified for child welfare. Oh, wow. Um, and she used to, it wasn't a well-paying job. It was basically like she had this kind of pay, slightly paid volunteer position um, doing assessments at group homes and juvenile facilities where she would sit with the kids who were in juvie and assess whether they should go on to adult correctional facilities or whether they could be released to a halfway house, a group home, whether they could go home to their parents, whether they could just be released to their own you know, agency. Um, and she did that with teenagers and something that I learned uh, statistically through Hank when I started working with Adopt Together, um, Hank and Sue Ann, you know, have like actual all the numbers. Right. But what I noticed informally from my mother sharing these stories, she was totally confidential. There were never names or, but she would let me in on what was going on in the world. And she would remind me or would just point out that most of these kids that she saw came out of foster care. Yeah. Um, yeah. So many of them came out of foster care. Um, or, you know, we're in foster care when the problems started. And that was something that I didn't think about in a sort of larger societal way. That was something that just got my full attention. And I remember being 12 and thinking, I'm going to adopt when, mm. I'm, when I'm older. Because that was what I understood to be the way, one of the main ways you could participate in not allowing a child to end up in the foster care system. Yep. Um, and then when I, I started researching adoption here in the U S I discovered that that is true, that the way that we adopted was a birth mother, you know, wanted to put her, wanted to keep her child alive, did not want to terminate, uh, but did not, or could not raise her child and wanted to choose a family to raise that child. And that was a child who, if no one adopted would end up in foster care. And I want to stop for a second and say that in no way do I see myself as having saved my daughter. Mm. I really actually mm. resent that. And if you see me in the street, I will be nice to you, but please, please don't come up to me and say, that's a beautiful thing you did. Oh, you're such a wonderful person right. because I'll smile and I'll nod politely, but I'm throwing up in my mouth. Right. It's, that is not the conversation to it. have around adoption. Yeah. Um, it's a, it's a broken system. Yep. Um, that being said, within that broken system, our family got and has this amazing gift that we all found each other in this way that is outside of me having born a biological child. Um, and so I'm so grateful for the family that we get to be. When I got married to Chris, I forgot to tell him that it was top <laughs> that was of my list yeah. <laughs> to adopt a kid. And so I, I'm not joking. I, I have the most amazing husband. Um, and he... Is just that he's so much kinder than me and sweeter and just he's just a better person. And I um and I was brushing my teeth. I think I was pregnant even. Like we were pretty far along in the journey together, you know, and I was brushing my teeth and I came out of the bedroom, out of the bathroom one night, and he was like lying in bed. And I said, Oh, by the way, um, we're gonna adopt kids one day. Like I, I've been wanting to adopt since I was 12. And there was literally just like a pause. And he just looked at me and he went. Okay. <laughs> Amazing. And that was it. Like there, there was nothing. I said, okay, we can talk about it later. Do you want to think about it? He's like, no, I don't need to think about it. That sounds amazing. Great. Let's adopt. Like, absolutely. Would love that. 
Great. Had, had Chris ever thought about that? Or I, I, just not, in not that to, moment, not he had a knowledge. rational, he just in that moment. loving moment. And he was like, no, yeah, that's cool. Let's in do that it. moment. He, he, to my knowledge, he had not thought about it prior. I've asked. He has no memory of having thought yeah. about it prior. Um, I think he'll tell you that it was something that he knew about and sure would have considered. But like, he wasn't like me that like when I was 12, I was like, I'm, I'm going to adopt. And then saying, I'm going to adopt in this marriage. This is what we're going to do. Um, no, he was totally rational about it in a way that I love, which is, there are children in the world who needs home, who need homes. We have a home. You know, let of course, of course we're gonna do that. Yeah. Um, that's the only conversation we ever had about it until we were in a lawyer's office. We tried to foster to adopt um at first. We went through the foster care system and ended up not being able to because I travel so much for work. And you have to, you can't yep. travel. Yep. And there's just all these things that we we couldn't do it with our, our lifestyle. Um, so we, we did private adoption. Um, and that is how I came to adopt together. We didn't use the site, but I remember saying to someone once about, I knew Hank already, but like, wasn't fully familiar. And I remember saying to somebody like, God, adopting is so expensive. Like there should be a place where we're so blessed that we can afford to pay all these adoption expenses. What about people who can't afford it? Yeah. What about all these people who want to adopt but can't afford it? What about the people who believe in adoption and want to support it, but for whatever reason can't adopt in their own life? Yep. And they want to support people who are done. And my friend who I you know, knew Hank and Sue Ann and knew about Adopt Together at the time looked at me and went, there is. There is, it exists. It exists, yeah. this thing you're talking about. What do you mean? Hank, aren't you friends with Hank? Wait, what? That's how that went. And then immediately became involved, immediately was like, how can we serve? What resources can we, you know, money, social media, how, how can we participate in this? This is an unbelievable, you know, um, organization. So that, that became our primary, that became our first organization that we have sort of like a list of, depending on the resources we have each year, we have like a list of, um, uh, yeah, a list of priorities. Adopt Together is just first. The financial side of adopting is massive um massive I mean, and insane and it's, it's it's massive and insane and, and it's it, it's un unjust and it shouldn't yeah. be that way but no. here we are right mm -hmm. um so my we also wanted to adopt it wasn't me springing on her or vice versa we both wanted to we um had a very complicated failed pregnancy when we started trying to have kids and they I'm told to us, thank you. Yeah. And they told us, um, don't try to get, this was weird. It, you know, there could be like cancer left in there. We're mm. We tried to clean, whatever. It's a whole, it was a whole big thing. And they were like, don't get pregnant. You know, after a normal miscarriage, they say, wait six weeks and then go for it again. This one was like, you can't get pregnant for a year wow. or the same thing can happen again. So we're just like, oh my God, we want to start a family. A year is a long time. We were going to adopt number two, or we're going to try to adopt number two. Let's just try to adopt number one. So we started in the process and we didn't have back then, or maybe it existed. I don't know. Actually, I actually don't know when Adopt Together started, but I don't think it was 2008. No, I was actually going to say 2009. I think it oh, started. So, okay. So but we, I could be wrong. No, but I know it's been yeah, around for a while. It, I think, I don't think 2008, I don't think it was around. I think it's pretty new. So, yeah. So seven it's, years. Um, so we, Went through the process. We we were poor. We were. I was working for a nonprofit organization. Didn't make a lot of money. They made no. Even though it was so funny, as I think back on my former life, it was a Christian organization that I was working with. They talked incessantly 
about adoption and the importance of adoption. And a lot of the families in our like friend circle had adopted. But this organization who adoption was one of their big issues, the thing that they talk about it, offered no assistance to their employees for adoption. Also, something I'm still angry at, and I, I made sure they knew whenever I left the organization, is I had to use to go to once our adoption was finalized. No, I feel like I know what you're about to say. I had no, to use no. um, unpaid yeah. personal days to go get this to get this child. No, super fucked up. Whatever. It's a whole. That's a whole different thing. Many people listening know my whole story, so they know exactly who I'm talking about. Right. Uh, I've ranted and raved enough about them, but so we. Long story short, we go down there. Horrible situation. Thirteen year old girl. There was, I know enough about the story to know that it was someone close to her that had raped her. Mm. She's pregnant. I think wisely was deciding not to keep the baby, but mm. but wanted to, in, in her case, she wanted to go through with the pregnancy. Um, And so we got matched and we headed down to Alabama to get the baby and everything fell apart in three days. So we had already paid, you know, even this, even this uh, uh, domestic adoption, we were already... At the point when we showed up, we were already, you know, twelve, thirteen, fifteen thousand dollars in. Yeah. And show up. Long story short, you know, once the baby's born, the birth mom has seventy-two hours to sign the baby away. Most sign away right away. Mm -hmm. They're ready to go. They might say bye to the baby. They might not see the baby at all. There's all these like different ways that they encourage the birth mm -hmm. mother to go through it because it's hard. You are giving away your child. 70, 70, literally seven, no, it was like 69 hours in on New Year's Day. Um, she decided to keep the baby. So that was really hard. It was really hard because we had already spent hours with the baby. I still uh, think about the baby all the time. Yeah. I still cry a lot of times when I think about the baby because I have no idea who that baby is today? Is she healthy? She was born to a thirteen-year-old mom. The step, her stepfather, the 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 birth mom's stepfather, was adamantly opposed to taking the baby home because he was like, "We don't have enough money to take care of what we do have." Mm. And yeah. it was mainly the birth mom's mother who got attached to her granddaughter, and the whole thing fell apart. But um, it's a really hard thing. It's a really hard thing. And it's a really fucked up system because it was partly the birth mother, it was partly my lawyer who was not really good at advocating for us. And I say all that to share some of the story, which I've, I think in 200 and something episodes, I've only shared part of that story once or twice. So it, it, it bears repeating. Mm -hmm. But the important part was, you know, one of the things that I love about Adopt Together is it's a tool that needs to be there. It's this, it's this, it's this no shit moment, right? Like there needs to be a platform that helps people do this because in my case, we had to beg, borrow, and steal to get all the money we needed. And there was one family in particular, one of my good friends who gave, I think he wrote like a $2,500 check, wow. very generous. And when we were coming back from that thing, because we had done so much there was no fundraising platform. There was right. no like people rallying right. around us. We had to like that was it. That was the money you spent. You that was the money we spent again. And right, yeah. So we came back from that thing, and now we have three biological children. Love them to death. I think we're done. <laughs> Three's a lot. Three feels like a lot for us. But 
there was this moment after it, there was a lot of moments where we were sad and we were grieving. We came back with an empty car seat an empty, you know, uh, pack and play, mm-hmm. all these clothes that we had bought. Just what do you do with these things now? It just feels, you just feel shitty. But also this idea of we spent everybody's, you know, we didn't do it. We had no control over it, but we're beating the shit out this of ourselves. Feeling that you spent we spent all this money. money. Right. And flush it down the toilet yeah. because it, it went into my lawyer's pocket, who was an asshole. I'll just be very honest. He was not a good lawyer. And it went into the system's money and and we will never get that back. And I felt so bad. I had, I mean, I had to go back to these friends and, and they did not expect an apology, but I felt like I had to give one. Right. Like you gave us $2,500. Right. So now, you, now nothing, you're in grief. I have nothing. And to, you have guilt. Yeah, I have nothing to speak for it. So I love Adopt Together. Yes. And- you can, um, this is, I'm, I'm so, I'm reluctant to share this because I, I don't want it to be like, that's a great story. Now let me make it about me. No, um, please. I just want to say, I see you. We yeah, had, thank you. before we adopted our daughter, we had a, a very similar story. We mm. had, a, we had a daughter for three days. Oh. Um, and the, the birth mother had actually signed, uh, the paperwork. Oh, wow. Um, but you know, what do you, what do you do? A mother says she wants to, she wants to parent. What do you do? You abscond with the baby. You do not. Mother wants to parent. You, you give her her child back, Yeah. you know, even though it's, it's so that's what we did. Mm. Um, and I have no regrets about that decision. Um, but I, but I, 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 I see you. I know what you mean Thank when you, you say, you no, think, when you I, think about that baby and you wonder where she is now and if she's all right and who's looking after her and who's telling her that she's wonderful and the world is better just because she's in it. Like, yeah. I, is I, that happening? I see you. Is that happening? Yeah. Have you ever looked for the baby? Like, have you ever done, like, no. social media is this different tool now that was coming out when we lost our baby. And I would be lying if I haven't, probably no more than three times, but three times over the years, I have gone back in my emails to look for names. Right. And been like, I wonder if I can find the birth mother. I just want to look at her. I just want to look at the child. No. See if she's okay. Yeah. And I've never I- found her. And I'm kind of glad I didn't because not that I would have done anything right. like, but that, I think that would have hurt me more Right. to like the last memory I have is healthy baby, you know, right. uh, in the sort of ink, the, under the warming light. And, and I think that's the best place to keep her in my mind versus like seeing her now as a 12 year old in whatever state she's in, yeah. you know, a physical state, not right. geographical no, no, I, state. Yeah, like, yeah, you know, yeah. like I I think it's better that I saw her last as a three-day-old baby. Yeah, I I have not done that, and I completely understand the impulse. Yeah. I understand the impulse, and I understand the wanting to know. Um, I think, um, I don't know, if I could offer a couple of thoughts that may or may not Please. Feel, serve in that space, um, which is the thing that I came to was, you know, Chris and I talked about it a lot afterwards, obviously, and we had to, we were grieving and, you know, you tell everyone and you, you name your daughter, you take her, you know, back to, you can't leave the state yet, but we took her back to, we'd rented an Airbnb that was a house and we took her back to the house and you wake up in the night and you change the diapers and you do three nights and three days and you tell all your friends and family and you send photos and you introduce your daughter. Right. And then, um, and then you give her back to your birth, her birth mother Mm. and you get on the plane, you know, home alone. And I'm looking at you, you know, this, right. This dance. It's hard. Um, It's a hard day. It's incredibly hard. And so we had to move through this grief afterwards. And while we were talking about it, I had to take a hard look at some of the assumptions that I was making. Um, and, 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 and really like just say some hard things out loud. Things like, why do I assume that she's better with me than with her own mother? Right. Was she 19? Yeah. Was she poor? 
Yes. Did it look like a good situation? Not the best. Yeah. Right. But my mother was abusive and my father was an alcoholic and I'm sitting here with you on the let's give a damn podcast in yep. my nice house yep. in LA. Right. Your amazing family. And, and your yes. And I say things about my parents that I, that, that feel, you know, evolved to me when I look at where I was, right? The amount of work and the amount of healing and the things I did. And, and I go, you know what? Okay, here I am. I wouldn't change it. Actually, I wouldn't change yeah, it. So 100%. does that child, uh, could that child have had more money with me, been in a nicer house with me, gone to what is considered a better school with me? Sure. Like on paper, it looks better, right? Yeah. But that's all that's all erasing the fact of being a human being, which is that extraordinary people and extraordinary, ordinary people yep. come out of adversity, Yep. right? Come out of, they get grit. Yep. So I just, I go to the place where I go, I made assumptions based on all of my, uh, I know it's a loaded word, but based on all of my privilege, I made assumptions that that child was better off with me. But the truth is, I don't know what life has in store for that child or who she's going to become. And I don't know what she needed in order to become who she's going to become. And maybe she got exactly what she needed to be who she is now. And maybe that's, maybe who she is now is, is okay or going to be okay. You know, it's a beautiful word. Or Maybe it's great. Maybe that mom realized that she wanted to be a mom and it was life changing for her. Maybe it saved her life. I don't know. Yeah, all but of those things. I just things. choose to not not to be overly optimistic and not to erase the adoption trauma and not to erase the hardships of being a 19-year-old, you know, with a child or a 13-year-old. Or a 13-year-old, yeah. I just, I have to remember my own life and where I come from and that I make all kinds of assumptions about the benefits of the things that we call privilege. Yeah. I think one of the interesting things about not adopting back then, and I don't know if we ever will or foster, but the in that point in our lives, we were newly married two years in, and we were part of this, as I, as I alluded to earlier, we were part of this community that really advocated for adoption. But I think so much of the advocation that was going on was out of it, it was, it was coming from an unhealthy place. It was coming from a white savior complex. It right. was coming from, look at all this adoption, look at all these horrible situations, we're gonna save these kids. Right. And I don't know, I'm trying to think back like we're going to save them from being raised by their own mothers. Yeah. Like the, ugh, the, the, it makes the my audacity. Skin crawl. That makes my skin. Crawl. Yeah. And I don't know. I don't think I know I've changed and I've grown and I've evolved. I don't, as I think back 11 years ago, I don't think that I was on board with that type of mindset, but I'm sure because it was my whole world back then that it was affecting me. So maybe probably it was a good thing. Now I would have grown and evolved, but yeah, that would have been, a different kind of horrible. Being born to a 13-year-old mom, hard. But maybe that baby got way more love and affection and just unadulterated affection and like, I love you for who you are versus maybe in our home, at least for a little bit, that child would have felt like a project. And I hate to even say it that way, but that's the world that, I mean, I know sure. families in that in that community that oh, you can you see can, it on Instagram, right? It's like it. the influencer adoption. Like the, you know, let me show you, let me show you our, our, our beautiful project. That's yep. the, that, that's we the, saved I'm sorry, them. that's the we right saved word them. for it. We yeah. saved them. Yeah. And, and it, unfortunately it erases the conversation about adoption trauma 
right? Which is, and don't get me wrong, I'm an advocate for adoption, yeah. right? Like yep. our birth Same. mother, our birth mother and I, this sounds, oh God, I mean, even saying it, it just sounds, whatever. I, I, I hope for assumption of goodwill when I say our birth mother is the bravest fucking woman I know. Yeah. I cannot imagine yeah. being pregnant, looking at my life and thinking my child will be better somewhere else. Hardest thing and ever. And then going through with it. Hardest thing ever. Hard, I can't imagine the courage, the sense of self, the strength, the the love, the fucking, how much you have to love your kid to give them a better life like that, yeah. right? And that's like, you know, the adoption experience, the immigrant experience, or the, you know, where people send their children away from them for better lives, right? Like all of that. Um, I get emotional and then I lose my train of thought. Why did I start... Uh, Oh, it's yeah. okay. The you project, got it. the um, the sort of project. Um, we don't talk about the fact that adoption comes with trauma. Yeah. For the child. Yes, it does. Right. And so, did our birth mother make the right decision? According to her, she did. Yeah. Right. I I keep in touch with her, and she still feels like we are the right family mm. and we made and that she made the right decision and do do we feel like our lives are better like boy do we ever right like yeah. best thing best thing in the world my daughter yeah. and um but there's trauma on that end right there's loss why couldn't my mother keep me if she wanted to why couldn't she if she didn't want to why didn't it why, why not right why am i in a situation where i'm looking around and biologically, these are not my people, right? How come the people who were supposed to be my people didn't or couldn't keep me? And all of the other things that I don't know because I wasn't adopted as a baby, I was adopted as an adult and it's a very different situation, right? I don't know. And all the other traumas that I've seen people, adopted people express, right, and name, I feel like we bury that by making really pretty filtered Instagram videos of mm. our, you know, of like adopted children in their beautiful dresses and doing their hair and look at our beautiful family and not ever talking about the other side. Where are those people? Where are the influencers going? Hey, I took a class today. I took a workshop today on adoption trauma because my daughter's eight years old. And I'm pretty sure that this year or the next is when she's going to be able to verbalize grief and turn to me and go, how come my mom couldn't keep me? Yeah. How are you going to answer that? It's coming. You know? Anyway, I don't mean to make it dark. I just, these are important conversations. You, I'm encouraging people to have them. Yeah, and, and we should, we should. <laughs> and, and, and I do think kind of full circle, adoption, like the adoption system and the foster care system, as fucked up as they are, I believe that all of us can, I won't, I won't go as far as saying should, but kind of should have a part in it. Whether it's yes. families saying we can actually adopt or we can foster or there's so many f uh, organizations like Adopt Together. There's so many families that need help. They actually do have the capacity, the physical, emotional capacity to bring more children under their roof, but they can't afford it. Right. You've got money. Come on, let's go. We can all yes, work together. Yes, I think it should be like taxes, by the way. I think it should be a civic duty. I think until there are no more homeless children, it should be everyone's civic duty to contribute to the reduction of the number of 19 million, which is how many orphans there are in the world, to zero. Yeah. Why isn't this our civic duty? And there's like three, 400,000 uh, kids in the foster care system in this country. And we, here's what we do. Here's what we do though, because it's so fucked up that we do this. We build jails, we build juvie centers, we build all these things for when, when life 
chews them up and spits them out because they had this uh, 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 hard life, whether they're in the foster care system or mom couldn't keep them, whatever it is. Yep. We let them grow up not being cared for, not being loved, not being held, not being fed, not being housed. And when they fuck up, mm -hmm. we're ready for them then to put them in jail, to put them in juvie, to treat them like they're a problem in society, mm -hmm. instead of putting all that money mm -hmm. in the for-profit criminal legal system that we have, take the money from there, bring it much earlier in life, pay people to, like, you pay all the expenses so they can adopt, yeah. so they can foster. Oh, you're giving them money, and I get it. Again, it's fucked up, it's complicated. I know there's people that abuse the system, but by and large, it's people with goodwill and good intentions in their hearts. You pay them more than you're paying them to foster these kids. Oh, yeah. You really make them feel like we're so glad that you are going out of your way with all the stuff you have going on in your life, your job, your you know, two-income family, paying off student loans. You have decided to take kid in. We're going to make it worth your while. There's all these things we can do, and we're not doing it. And so as a for society at large, by the way, like for the, for the conservative economist who's listening, right, the math is really bad on everything you've just described and so much better on, right. Just like from a number standpoint. And I mean that in terms of like, it doesn't make sense. doesn't make actual, we're not only we're we making these bad choices, it doesn't make sense. Adopt together. Um, if you go to their website, lays out the numbers yeah. and financially it says per child, what it costs for a child to go through foster care and then potentially be incarcerated or get pregnant right before the age of 18, which is the statistics for that are astronomically high um, for girls who go through foster care and all of the ways in which they then become, uh, you know, dependent on a system again of money and finances and like the economics involved in all of in looking after them or whatever as adults. And then you just do the math on, on, um, sponsoring adoptions yep. for each of these children so yep. they can have homes where these things are provided home care, you know, roof over your it's head, pennies on the school, dollar, comparatively. pennies on the dollar. Yep. The, like it's, it's actually, it just just, makes you sense. just want to take the, all the emotional stuff out of it and all the, like, you know, all the humanitarian conversation and just like, actually just want to do a numbers game. Just go, Hey, we're, it's economically, this is also a really bad way to do it, which is an argument I sort of keep in my back pocket for the once in a blue moon. I know that I'm going to end up in a conversation with mm. somebody who's going to tell me that I should stop being preachy and it's not my problem. And why are people making bad choices and why are they getting pregnant? And that's their fault. And they should know about abstinence. You know, I'll be like, well, let's not have that conversation because I'll kill you. Let's have the <laughs> I won't kill you, but that's just something I say, people. I apologize. It's um, all good. But no, I you know, it. I'll I pull out that. the I'll, I'll pull out the economics. Yep. Just be like, let's talk numbers yeah. instead of philosophy and humanity. Yep. Let's just talk numbers. Well, I like yeah. preachy Rochelle. I like this. <laughs> so we have talked about your family and upbringing, how hard that was. We've talked about your parenting your two amazing children, both, you know, vastly different. So many things they're going through. Now we've talked about adoption. You want to talk you, about the weather? No, I don't want to talk about the weather. <laughs> anything well, with, anything the, with the weather. The weather is amazing here in Southern California. No shit. It's like 70 <laughs> degrees. I don't know how to amazing. do small talk, so. <laughs> Neither do I. I'm so bad it's at it. It's the worst. What we haven't touched on, which I want to, because you are, you are much more than your passion and your preachiness, which I love. And people have benefited so far. If they've made it this far in the conversation, they are better off for it. You, you. how do you describe, this is a huge pivot, but I want to yeah, get here as we begin to like, you know, get to the end of our conversation. How do you describe your career, where, what you've done, the kinds of things you've been involved in, um, 
talk about that and kind of get to the point. I, I do want to hear, this is just a kind of a fun question because we've done some really hard stuff, is like, what's the favorite thing you've done and mm -hmm. why of all the amazing thing, projects you've been a part of? It's funny. It's, how would you describe your career? And the word that wanted to blurt out was accidental. Like it. Yeah. How did that? Yeah. Happen? No. It really feels accidental. But no. All, I don't. I don't just mean like the story that if people know my story at all, or you know, um, uh, have ever read any one of my bios that's like floating around out there, then yeah, there's this story about you know I was waitressing and. Uh, you know, told the producer I wanted to be an actress. He got me an audition. And then I sort of, uh, you know, fell into this um, role on this TV show. And that led to other things. And it kind of went from there. Um, so that part was, you know, felt accidental. Um, but what I mean by accidental is someone once said to me, I was, I don't know, I was somewhere in my like late 20s, early 30s. And I was in a position to have some choices of jobs. And I was giving myself a hard time for feeling like none of the jobs were like street cred. Mm. Like none of the jobs felt like I'm so fucking good in my acting class. Not always, because I also go there to fail wildly. Um, but like, you know, I just feel like there's there really is, I feel, a great performance in me, right? That has not taken place on screen. Mm. I, I joke and not joke that my best performances are ahead of me. Um, and I was kind of lamenting that. I was kind of going, you know, yeah, I have these like amazing choices and I'm so grateful and I don't want to be ungrateful, but none of these choices are the container for the performance that I feel that's in me. Yeah. And this person said to me, you can only make the choices that are available. And the choices that are available are one of these jobs or no job. Yeah. Yeah. And that's it. So I hear you. I'm sorry that you feel that way. Now call your agent and pick a job. Yeah. <laughs> and that's kind of what, in a blessing way, like, yes, amazing that I've had these choices and incredible that I've had these opportunities. But it has sort of felt accidental, right? I would love to say that I was brave enough, bold enough. I don't know who does this. I imagine, I, I know that there are actors who do, um, you know, who just turn down work until it's something that's really incredible, right. really meaningful, right? And they're like, I'd rather, I just, I'll just waiter my whole life. And I'll never have a professional paying acting job if it isn't the thing I really want to do, if it isn't something that's really alive in me and it isn't. And I was never that brave. And also to give myself some credit, I love working. I love act other actors. I love directors. I love being on a set. I love a crew. So it does feel a little bit accidental. Like I worked really hard. And then also the doors that were open to me were just the ones that were open to me. And I just kept saying yes to the doors that were open. So yeah, that's how I got here. Yeah, you know, it's it's kind of funny the 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 distinction you just drew. I remember seeing this interview, you know, on YouTube uh, on the Graham Norton show, Kristen Stewart, and I think it was Chris Rock. And Kristen had said something about there. I got offered this role, and something didn't feel right, so I didn't take it. Right, and it's Kristen Stewart. Obviously, she's mm -hmm. at a level where she can say no, but mm -hmm. she just very nonchalantly was like, "And I didn't take it." And Chris looked at her. I think it was Chris because this is a very Chris thing to say. Chris Rock was like. What does that feel like? Like <laughs> right. he goes, he goes, he goes, I've, he goes, I'll never turn anything right. down. Like I need the work. He's like, you want me to play a Mexican guy? I'll play a Mexican guy. Right. And he's like, I never turn anything down. And Kristen was obviously laughing and she was being a good champ about it, but it's, it's the difference there. I never had the self-confidence. Um, uh, you know, I don't want to be as unkind to myself as to say, I, I never had her talent. Um, I never had 
I have not yet had her talent, right? So like, may I, might I one day, if I keep working and there's the right performance and could I give a performance that feels to me like I went, okay, I was really talented in that. Yeah. Um, you know, may, maybe I like to, I should quit now if I don't believe that that's possible. Sure. Right. Yeah. So I, I have to believe that going. that's possible. Yeah. But I certainly have never up until this point, I've never been as talented as her. But she, um, and also she has a, a confidence, like just a firm belief in what she wants to do. Um, I, I remember having a conversation with her once we were all, a bunch of us were sitting around, a bunch of actors sitting around and we were going around and I, I didn't mean to tell a Kristen Stewart story. It's just so applicable. Yeah, go for um, it. we were all sitting around just like shooting the shit and everybody was saying, you know, your dream role, typical actor conversation with some drinks yeah. in our hands, you know, what's yeah. your dream role? And we went around and I said, uh, and I sort of smiled longingly and I said, you know, Salome, <laughs> And then I rolled my eyes at myself and I said, you know, I'll never, I'll never play Salome. Right. And very quietly without making me feel bad without, and it just, just very quietly just sitting next to me, Kristen said, I will. Hmm. And I knew what she meant. Mm -hmm. I knew what she, I knew exactly what she meant. You know, mm -hmm. it wasn't Salome specifically. It was just like the answer to her question, what's your dream job was like, this is the role I want. This is the role I'll play. Yeah. I just, I will. Yeah. It was just so alive in her and her confidence that, that there was not, there was no other choice. It felt to me in the moment, like there's no other choice for her, except this is the talent that she's possessed of. This is the skills she's called. These are the skills she's cultivating and working on. And this is where it's going to go. And that's just going to be my journey. That's what I heard. And I have never felt in my life, not for a nanosecond, that confident, that self and that self-possessed and that possessed of the tools to get me to that place. Right. Yeah. So I don't turn down work. Yeah. So, I mean, well, that's not true that I, that's not true. My, my manager's going to cringe. That's not true. I've turned down jobs. Just, you know. No, I understand you know what I mean. By and large, yeah. you're saying yes. yes. And I, I mean, yeah. I am where I am today. And it's, I'm grateful for the yeses I've gotten to have. hundred you know? percent. Yeah. And I would just, I would rather, yeah, I just, I, I believe in yes. I think it's got me into trouble at times and I've had to go back, you know, with my wife and my family and be like, I'm working too much. I get it. We're obviously in different, we're in different, you know, lines of work by and large, but still the same thing. Like I am a yes person, not because I'm trying to please anybody, but because I don't know which one of the things I say yes to is going to be the thing that takes me to the next level. Nine out of 10 of them are just another thing to do. Right. Pays a little money, whatever. It's a, it's a project. I do consulting. I speak here, whatever. It doesn't go anywhere. But then what about that one thing? that actually does launch my career into the next, you know, the next level. I want to be saying yes to that because I don't know, I'm not privy to the information about which one is the thing that's going to take me there. So I like saying yes. 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 It's amazing how listening to someone else say it sounds terrifying. Why would anybody want to live that way? <laughs> but it like, in terms of how I approach it, like I'm, you know, when you can't hear, you can't see it for yourself. Like you can't take your own advice, you right. know? And I totally hear you. Yeah. And I'm just going, my God, I've been living in fear my whole life. Right. Because if I think about that, it's like, yeah, okay. I, I yes, I don't want to miss an opportunity. But also the idea that only good things are behind one door of the three. <laughs> Right. And I, and I better pick the right door. Yep. That sounds like fear to me. Yeah. And that's, you know, and so I, I think I have to be honest about the fact that that has been a lot of what has driven me is like, like I, it's not necessarily what you're saying, but I hear, I see myself in the idea that, yeah, like what if I, what if I don't pick a door? What if I pick the wrong door? What if I say no? And that's not the thing that, you know, yeah. um, Yeah. I don't know that there's a lot of 
know that there's a lot of like exhaling in that. I don't know that there's a lot of peace in that. Feels like sure. feels like always just waiting for the next door and hoping that that's going to be the thing. You yeah. know? Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure a lot of people, if I if I ask the question, what's the favorite thing you ever did? If they know your career, they might assume that you're going to say being part of the Twilight saga. Is that true? What's been your favorite? I mean, you were just on Law and Order the other day. Like, I mean, you've done a lot of things, TV, films. You've done a lot. Yeah. But again, I think people might expect you to be like, oh, I was a vampire on Twilight. Is Was that your favorite thing? What, what's sort of one of the no, projects I that's have, really given you life? I have a really annoying answer to this. And it's the same reason why my husband hates it when people go, what's your favorite thing to cook? He's like, whatever I'm cooking in the moment. Like, whatever, whatever food I made that you think is delicious. That's, that's basic. It. That's it. That's my favorite job. Like, whatever I did... So there is one thing about the like not saying no, you know, saying yes to things. I don't say yes to something unless I think that I'm going to be happy doing it. 100%. Like the the things that I have said no to have actually been the no's have been because for whatever reason could be there's a million different reasons, right? Why I could be unsatisfied or unhappy. Sometimes, I mean, I remember turning it on down a job that was a good job for the simple reason that the male co-star who worked 45% of the time versus my 55%. Like it was a two-hander, but my character worked just a little more, right? In yep. this four-part miniseries where he would have been making, was making four times what I was making. Insane. And I said, no, out of principle, I just couldn't do it. Yeah, And good that, for you. I wouldn't have been, I, I would have been on set every day. And this is, by the way, before this was a conversation, this was like 15 years ago, you know, it was just towards the beginning. Yeah. And I just, it could, didn't sit right with me. So I wouldn't have been happy. Yeah. I just would have felt taken advantage of. Yeah. Um, so that's a reason to say no. Or, you know, you don't like the script or whatever it is. But um, I, I only say yes if I can feel like, do I want to work with these people? Can I? Is there something in this character that I like? Can I imagine myself on set doing this job and, you know, having the best time that I can have, even if it's a miserable job, even if it's like your husband left and your daughter was kidnapped and, you know, I'm crying every day. Right. There's a joy in that too, right? So like, can I be happy doing this? And so I say yes in that place. So that's how I show up at every job. So every job, the one I'm doing is my favorite. I love that. I don't think that's a cop-out. I think that's a great answer. It's That's my answer. I love it. Okay, so there is a cross-country move in your future. Things are yes. happening in your life and in your family's lives. What's next for you? Like, what are you excited about? I know you just, the answer you just gave to, what's your favorite project you've done is the next yeah. one that I'm doing. So what is happening in your life that you're excited about? Obviously, we've, in the first hour and a half of our conversation-ish, we got to see that you you give a damn. You want to live a meaningful life. You are doing that in your family, out in public, et cetera. So what's next? What are you excited about? So, uh, yeah, really excited about our move across the country. I'm actually moving to Nashville. So you and I are going to talk about that. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, for better or for worse, yes. we're not going to talk about that. I'm really excited um, to Good. move to Nashville. My husband's already there. He loves it. Uh, he's working and is, he got a job there, which is why we're going. Um, and I'm really happy to just be supportive and move there because there's a job he really wants to do there because yeah. he's done that for me. And it's my, it's my turn. Yeah. It's my turn to be the partner who it's goes. It's a partnership. It's a partnership yep. and it's my turn. Yep. So I'm going where his job needs to go now. Um, and I feel really, really good about that. And I've only been to Nashville twice in my life, but I liked it both times. And so no city is perfect, but we'll see what that brings. But I am excited. Um, and then the other thing I'm really excited about is uh, I, I'm in the middle of getting certified as a life coach. Amazing. Because there's, other things that I want to do. I want to write. I want to write a book. Um, I have a business that I 
have been thinking about building for a long time. And I really want to work aside from continuing to be an actor, which I'm insanely passionate about and will keep doing. Also want to be like really properly qualified to work one-on-one with people in a way that I've been doing casually in my life my whole life and sort of playing that role, being that friend. And I've had, I have my 10,000 hours in terms of being a client, (laughs) um, in the healing space in every imaginable sphere. Um, I said in a sort of, I took a class once on giving talks and I said in my talk, if there was a door with the word healing over it, I've walked through it. Yeah. (laughs) Any no matter how strange or out there, including traditional talk therapy. Um, and I had a realization in the pandemic as a lot of people did where I had two years to be alone with my thoughts instead of at dinner with my friends where I realized that I love being on set and I missed it and I missed my job I missed my career and I started to realize that one of the things that I missed the most aside from the actual acting I was like what do I miss about it one of the things I missed the most was the conversation that takes place all while you're not filming the conversation that I would have when I realized that one of the grips was reading the same book that I was reading, when my driver was telling me about their custody battle, when, um, you know, another actor was telling me about, you know, some interpersonal relationship thing or their own struggles with their career or whatever it is. And all of these conversations where I, I've had the privilege of sitting and listening to, and sometimes offering, you know, advice if they want it, most of the time just saying I see you to like hundreds of people over a 20 something year career. And I didn't know that actually that was also what I was doing for a living. Yeah. And I love it. Yeah. And I want to be properly qualified to do it. So Mm. I'm taking a proper certification class right now. And then I think I'm going to build a side business, um, sitting down with people and figuring out, why they might be unsatisfied with their lives and how they can have more joy and how they can get what they want, what they really want, not what they think they should want, yeah, not what they want their partner to think they want, not what they think is socially acceptable, but what they actually want and then how to live a meaningful life and, and how to get there. I want to help people do that. And we'll talk about Nashville later, but I do think starting that type of a, a project mm-hmm. in Nashville might be really good because one of the things I have a lot of shit that I could talk about Nashville. Um, one of the worst governors in the country, yada, yada. We could go on and on and on them arresting a bunch of my friends two summers ago at black lives matter rallies. Like Mm -hmm. it's a very, it's got some backward shit going on, Mm -hmm. but some of the most forward thinking, empathetic, caring, loving leaders that I've ever met in my life are in Nashville. I don't know if it's in the water. I don't know if it's the kind of, people that this geographical area uh, attracts. I don't know what's happening there. Mm-hmm. I'm sure they exist in New York. They exist in LA. They exist all over the place. But there's a there's a big group of people there that I think will be cheering you on. You'll be cheering them on. There's just a lot of like really empathetic, caring, loving people there. Like people that are helping other people do exactly what you're talking about. They're not going to be competition for you because you're you. You're doing it in a very unique way. But I think, and there's also like very much, I think you tell me, I don't know LA all that much. I feel like there's probably this constant feeling of like, unless you're in the immediate friend circle of these different people, if it's somebody over there that's winning or doing well or whatever, there seems to be like a lot of competition here. Mm-hmm. There is in New York as well. It's like kind of doggy. There is some camaraderie, but it's a lot of like doggy dog. Like we've all got to make it. And in Nashville, I felt 
like there was a lot of rooting for each other. There's a I'm, lot of cheering each other, cheering each other on in a competitive yeah. city. Like it's music, yeah. And now tech is there, and a lot of actors live there. A lot of people in entertainment live there, and there's just a ton of like, hey, if you're winning, we're all fucking winning. So like, go for it. That makes me so excited, and it echoes something that actually a, a woman said to me. I have made a couple friends just in you know through connections and trying to make friends even before I moved there. Yeah. Um. And I had a conversation with this woman who's a female entrepreneur, and she said there are incredible things happening here, particularly with women supporting other female entrepreneurs. It's true. And um and just like yeah, she said there's just an energy here where like people are starting businesses and being really supportive of each other. Um, so I, that I'm, you're the second person to, to say that. And that makes me really excited to go there. And I love the idea that, yeah, New York and LA, it's all, there's so much competition and there's the illusion that it's a zero sum game. Right. It's not a zero sum game. Nope. By there's the way, enu there's any, enough for all of there's us. There's enough for all of us to don't live in scarcity. Like for the, you know, out of, after I'm like, I say yes to every job, but to tell, you know, actors and artists and like, if someone else succeeds, they didn't take your spot. Yep. What you offer is unique. You will find your spot. The people who want to work with you will work with you. And they're not, not going to work with you because they work with that other person. Stop. You're not in competition with the person in the waiting room sitting next to you. You actually can all figure it out and find your place. And, you know, yeah. So I want to be in a space where that feels more pervasive. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that sounds you're, you're going to meet a lot of ton, a ton of people that are great. I'll introduce you to some people. It'll, I, I'm so excited about your move out there. Again, we left and we're happy to leave mm -hmm. for a few reasons but i think about all the time the amazing friends that we made there the amazing community that we fostered it really is a great city um all things considered yeah i, I sorry no you no, were gonna wrap no, up go for no, it no, no go oh i was gonna say i had this amazing interaction when i was there the last time i went to visit my hubby with the kids and um and i went into this vintage clothing store and the owner of the clothing store at one point we sort of chatted a little bit and uh and nobody was wearing a mask i was like the only person in the store wearing a mask and i happened to be wearing a black lives matter mask and and she said where are you from in that way yep <laughs> and i said Los Angeles, yeah, but right, origi like originally, kind of, originally from Canada, but yeah. Montreal, but can I say Montreal, you know, oh, Los Angeles? She said, mm -hmm. she said, you moving here? I said, I am. She said, people aren't going to like you. And she I said that. Yeah. And she said it actually in a way that made me feel like she was trying to do me a favor. Sure. Like a heads up. Yeah. You know, and. Um, it didn't feel like rude. It she wasn't felt being like, a bitch. She, she was actually a like giving you a heads like, up, yeah. the reality. But there was edge in it. Yeah. You know, she said, people aren't going to like you. And I said, when you say people aren't going to like me, you mean future people or you mean you? <laughs> and she laughed. That made her laugh. And then as a result of sort of both of us having an edge, we ended up having a 20 minute conversation where I promise you, you can tell by what was not said and what we moved around with our attempt at grace that we probably disagreed on just about everything a person can disagree on. That she's probably, if she was listening to this podcast at all, which she isn't, is shaking her head right. at all of it. And somehow we had not just a civil conversation. We shared laughs. We found a way to find common ground. We respectfully and sometimes with edge disagreed with each other in a way that told you don't come for that part of me. Yeah. I'm ready. Don't, don't go there. We're going to, you know what I mean? But, but neither of us wanted to fight and neither of us wanted to be rude or unkind to another human being. Mm. And that's the thing we had in common. And that made me want to live in Nashville even more because I was like, 
I was so afraid. I was like, oh, I'm going to be surrounded by people who are going to fundamentally disagree with me, or I'm going to fundamentally disagree with them more than I am here in Los Angeles. And I forgot, and I have forgotten for a long time being in this kind of bubble, that there's actually a third version. And the third version is people who you fundamentally disagree with, but who don't want to be unkind to another human being. Yeah. And I want to talk to those people. Yeah. I, I want to hear what they have to yeah. say. And she said something that got my attention. She said, you know what's wrong with people? People move here because they they love it. And they, they come here for all the reasons they'll tell you they want to live in Nashville. And then when they get here, they try to make it just like the place they just came from. It's true. Yeah. And it's true. Yeah. And all I could say in that moment was I said, I want, like, like I, I had this like knee jerk reaction that I wanted to be like, you're wrong. And I wanted to defend everything that I believe. And I just went, that must be really hard. Wow. I'm so sorry that's happening to you. Like to live in a place and to love a place and then to watch people who aren't from that place try come and then try it. to change it into the place they just came from. That must be really traumatic. I'm so sorry that that's happening to you. And that feels really aggressive in your energy. Like I'm, I'm just, I'm sorry. Thank you for pointing that out to me. I'm going to try not to be like that. Yeah. There are certain things I won't abide by and I'm not going to vote for governor Lee. Yeah but I'll try not to be the kind of person you're talking about. Yeah. And that exchange was so valuable and we had to navigate so much to get there, but it was worth everything we navigated to have that moment. And that gave me hope. I was like, maybe we can all live together. They're beautiful you know? people, complicated, beautiful people that have experienced so much. I mean, LA has been LA for a long time. Right. New York's been New York for a long time. Right. Miami's been Miami for a long time. Seattle's been Seattle for a long time. Nashville is one of the few cities in the country that I think is going through probably like Austin and Nashville are probably the two biggest cities right now that are being, there are so many forces at play right. to change who that place fundamentally is because all these people are coming in and they're going there for their, you know, people from New York are going there for the backyard in the wraparound front porch, mm -hmm. but they're bringing all their New York shit with them. Mm -hmm. And I agree. I agree. It's one of the reasons we left versus stayed is because I don't want to change the, the soul of this place. It's mm -hmm. going to change. It's being gentrified at, a, at an astronomical mm -hmm. rate. But this place has so much beautiful history and the people are beautiful, problems, you know, warts and all. And I have felt that, what that lady said, I felt over and over and over again living there. These people are just, they're scared. She's scared yeah. that the place that she's grown up to live, I guarantee you, maybe you found this information out, but if you didn't, guarantee she's lived there all her life. And she is scared she shitless mm -hmm. that this place is no longer the place that she grew up in. And that's a hard thing to be. That's hard. And also, by the way, like, you know, you've lived there your whole life and your kids can't afford a home anymore because the housing right. market has been totally ruined and bubbled. And, you know, and now you've lived there your whole life with a dream of one day owning a home and raising your it own cannot family. Happen anymore. And, it, and you can't do it now. Yeah. Of course you resent me. Yeah. Of course you do. Let's have that conversation. Let's not hate each other and honk at each other. And let's have that conversation instead. Yeah. You know? We've been going for hour and 45 minutes. Oh my God. So you've been okay. so you've been so gracious. This has been a wonderful conversation. One last question. I'm gonna paint a scenario really quickly. Sure. The scenario is that many, many decades from now, uh, you pass on to the afterlife. And one question we didn't get to, which we'll do a round two someday. I want to talk about faith, spirituality, and see where that plays into it. I believe in God. Here. We'll talk about the rest later. We'll talk about the rest later. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. Same with me. I believe in God. The rest is just detail. Who is this God and right. how do they work? Well, that's a different question for a different day. So decades from now, you pass on to the afterlife. Somehow I'm still alive. Uh -huh. And you asked me to eulogize, 
eulogize you in front of all of your family and friends. So I'm there in a big room with everybody, your husband, your kids, their kids, and it's all the people you love. And I get up to say a few words about all of your life, not not Rochelle, the actress, not Rochelle, the wife, the mother, the this, the that, just who you are, the impact that you left on the earth. What, what, What would you hope that I would say on that day? That I left people better than I found them. Does that sound, is that, is that self-aggrandizing? Does that sound too ambitious? No, that's the fucking point. Okay. (laughs) That's the fucking point. I don't, I don't want to make, I don't want to make it sound like I assume I'm capable of that. Just that it's, if I had, yeah, that was the choice. Yes. If I could have any version of it be true, that's the version I want. It would be self. people better than I found them. It would be self-aggrandizing if you said, I want to do that for everybody. That's impossible. But the whole point of life is nobody can figure out who this is attributed to, really. But the whole idea of leaving the planet better than you found it. It's the same thing. Yeah. That's the whole point is like we're small little us trying to make it happen with our problems and our shit and our careers and our families and all that. And if all of us just leave the people that are in our sphere of influence a little better than we found them, then the next generation does a better job. Your kids, my kids, boom. And then it just it's this ripple effect that 30 years from now, the world looks monumentally better than it does now. No wars, peace on the earth. People are accepting people for who they are. Kids don't have to walk around in fear for who they are. All that stuff happens in the next generation because sure not happening now. I I totally agree. And it's your podcast. So I promise I am going to give you the last word. I want to add to that, that um, there there are days where we're not capable of that, right? There are days where you just don't have capacity and you can, all you can do is put on pants and get through the day and you can't leave people better than you found them. I would say at the bare minimum, um, let's all try for leave no trace. Don't leave your fucking trash on other people. You don't have to make them better. You don't have to pile the firewood for the next camper, right? You don't have to like, you don't have to, you don't have to dust the the, the campsite area for rocks where they put their tent or do that. You know, you, when you can do that, do that. When you have capacity, please do that. But when you don't have capacity at the bare minimum, keep your trash to yourself, put it in the bin, walk away, leave no trace. That's amazing. The last word I have is, I think you're amazing. Uh, This conversation was really good. Um, I'm helped by it. You have, without even knowing it, it like corrected me in a good way on a few ways that I was thinking about certain things. Uh, So I'm better off because of it. The people listening, if they've made it this far, which they have, (laughs) this is not the longest one we've done. We've done a a bunch in, in the one to two hour range. But if they made it this far, they're helped as well. So keep living this incredible life, helping people now in Nashville here in a few months. And I can't wait to do it again. Thank you. I can't wait to do it again. And thank you for everything that you are doing and your listeners know what that is. So I won't list your resume, but thank you for moving through the world the way that you do. It's been a real pleasure. I appreciate that. Friends, thank you so much for showing up this week to spend time with Rochelle and me. To find links for everything mentioned in today's conversation and to keep up with all things Let's Give a Damn, visit letsgiveadam.com. Please share this episode with a friend. Please leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And please show up next week. We have many more incredible conversations coming your way. Chad Snavely, Jess Collins, and the incredible team at Sound On Studios made this episode. The music is by our friend Propaganda. You can reach out anytime and for any reason at hello at let's give a damn.com. I love you all. Be safe. Keep giving a damn. Bye for now.